In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Matt Galloway, and this is The Current Podcast. A warning to listeners, this next story deals with sexual violence in the context of war. Over the course of the war in Ukraine, when territory has been regained by Ukrainian forces, there's a pattern. News crews rush in to tell stories of torture and rape, crimes perpetrated against soldiers and civilians. But the scars of what happened remain long after those stories are out of the headlines. Freelance reporter Sarah Larniak has spent time in Ukraine talking to people about the long process of healing and the quest for justice. Before we hear her documentary, Sarah joins me from Kiev. Sarah, hello. Good morning, Matt. Tell me why you wanted to explore this topic. I will admit that this story is in some ways very personal to me. Uh, my grandmother was born and raised in Ukraine and suffered at the hands of German soldiers during World War II before she moved to Canada. But we never spoke really about what happened to her. We, we kind of have a pretty good idea. And what I hoped that this documentary could achieve was maybe help with destigmatization of sexual violence in war and maybe help peel back some of the the mystery about how healing can happen in a more healthy way. Because this isn't new, right? This 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 happens in 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 many conflicts. Absolutely. Sexual violence in war has been perpetrated for for hundreds and thousands of years and I mean most recently in the Balkans and Rwanda we we know about the impact in those kinds of conflicts. We know that it's something far deeper than just an act of violence against someone. It divides communities, it divides families, and it leaves really deep scars, impacts on mental health that then go on for generations. This is an enormously sensitive topic. And and war crimes in this war, and war crimes in these areas where the war has been fought, are still being investigated and prosecuted. When you were covering and reporting the story, what are some of the challenges that you came up against? The first challenge here is obviously finding people who are willing to talk about what happened to them because sexual violence is still so stigmatized, both against men and against women. But I would say that the other part of this is that corroborating what people say happened to them is very, very challenging. There's lots of people on the ground investigating these situations. However, it is largely about taking people's stories at face value and then and then looking at them in a broader picture of repeated storylines that we hear from from many people in a broader picture because there was no one else present in the room where many of these crimes were committed. The woman we hear from primarily in this documentary is a woman named Daria, and I was brought to her by a trusted source, which was the United Nations, and then different parts of her story were corroborated by health authorities, by the prosecutor's office, and by the national police in Ukraine. However, there are some parts of these stories that just can't be corroborated. So at a certain point, you have to just rely on these stories that come from people who lived through it. And meeting Daria and seeing the pain she was in, 
I really just had to rely on my own intuition as a reporter and as a human and trust that that pain was real. Sarah, thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Here's Sarah's documentary. It is called The Next War, and a reminder the details of this report are graphic, they're uncomfortable, and they will not be suitable for all listeners. The Kiev suburb of Bucha is synonymous with the horrors of the war in Ukraine. But on a sunny day last summer, those horrors felt very far away from this place. The roses are beautiful. Right. The city park is lush with deep greens, as well as the reds, pinks, and oranges of the well-maintained gardens. And this is where I meet Daria. Daria lives in a displaced persons shelter in Bucha now. But she used to live in one of the smaller villages on the outskirts of the Ukrainian capital, and she worked as a seamstress. Both her workplace and her home were severely damaged in the early days after the invasion. She shows me the video of the destruction on her phone. This is central uh, street of the village. There are no houses there. Daria is not her real name, but revealing her identity would go against Ukrainian law as her case is still before the courts. And the victims of sexual violence in Ukraine are being protected by having their identifying details withheld, even on court documents. She is eager to talk about what happened to her, but it is difficult. During the occupation, when the Russian came in, I didn't think they would come so close. And so she took us back to those days in March 2022 when the Russian invaders came to her town. I was staying with my kid's godfather because my house had already been bombed. There were 15 of our soldiers and my kid's godfather in that house, 16 men and two children. When the soldiers started going to the neighboring houses, I realized that I had to go out and meet them myself. I understood that if I didn't, they would come inside and just kill all the men and the young boys. So Daria walked out into the yard and lied to the Russian soldiers, telling them no one else was inside. The soldiers had mostly been looting the other houses, so she thought maybe they would leave her alone. But she wasn't so lucky. They just grabbed me by my hair. When I started to resist, they tied my hands and feet and dragged me to the place where they held me captive. As Daria goes on, she continues to get visibly more irritated. Picking at her hands, her clothes. But she insists on multiple occasions she wants to keep going. She wants people to know what happened here. They took the elderly people, too. 
a few young men and six children. The oldest child was 10 years old. It's obvious that they beat us, raped us. They forced us to use drugs. They opened our mouths and stuffed the bag with the drugs down our throat, poured water and shouted, swallow Ukrainian bitch. And after that, my heart was beating like crazy and the whole body was shaking. I shouted that I was pregnant so that they wouldn't beat me. But they didn't listen. Ukrainian authorities have only been able to corroborate parts of Daria's story, including that she was pregnant, raped, and later miscarried as a result of the trauma. The rest of this story is based on Daria's testimony alone and could not be independently verified. I mean, they raped everyone in front of each other. They killed and shot men there, too. Every evening when they got drunk, they chose the victim using a counting-out game. Think of a game of duck-duck-goose, but where the loser is killed, sometimes raped and tortured first. Daria says she even saw children die this way. The details she shares won't be included here, because they are details that you can't unhear. I hear all their voices, all the screams. I even forget sometimes that I was raped. Somehow, she was never chosen, she says. Instead, on March 21st, what's known as a green corridor was opened. This was an agreement from both sides to temporarily stop military activity to allow civilians to flee from the areas with active fighting. And one of Daria's captors let her go. I don't know why he chose me. Probably he felt sorry for me and another girl because we were raped so many times. Talking to a number of psychologists working all across Ukraine, the struggles Daria describes have become a common theme. The secondhand trauma of bearing witness, but being unable to help someone else, especially when it comes to sexual violence, it can be the most potent memory. That experience of being made completely powerless is what haunts people. There are many reasons why stories like Daria's can't be independently verified. Investigating war crimes is no easy task. National law enforcement, alongside independent war crimes investigators, have been on the ground since day one. And where evidence exists, it is being handed off to prosecutors all across the country. The most evidence of sexual violence was found in the Kherson region. The city of Kherson is a southern port. Residents were under occupation for almost nine months, until it was liberated more than a year ago. It's still only about five kilometers from the closest Russian positions across the river. Outside of the regional prosecutor's office, staff members take their morning smoke break, calmly exhaling and chatting as artillery continuously booms in the background. Papers are stacked around Andrei Kovalenko's desk. He is the lead prosecutor for the region. The only sunlight coming in peeks through the gaps 
between the sandbags stacked the full height of the window. He now faces the substantial challenge of sorting out what crimes were committed here and how he's going to prove it. The first challenge is collecting evidence in the territory where active hostilities were conducted, because it is often lost as troops withdraw. And so we've not only pursued searches for evidence directly at known scenes of crimes, but we've also been monitoring open sources of information, such as social media channels, to find evidence of crimes that were carried out. It's also included questioning witnesses. Many of them left once they could, so we have to look for them. In some instances, medical records can be used to help corroborate the stories of survivors. Kovalenko talks about one investigation his office is pursuing in particular. In a small village outside of Kherson, one woman reported being repeatedly raped by the same Russian soldier. The soldier threatened, she says, that if she didn't let him in the house, he would give her location to all of the other soldiers to visit her instead. That woman became pregnant as a result, Kovalenko says, and she has already given birth to that child. The prosecutor's office is still working to identify the accused, but the woman is hesitant to offer her full cooperation because she remains terrified the Russians will return and take vengeance. Even if they do identify the Russian soldier involved, and he is still alive, it is unlikely he will ever serve time behind bars. These instances of rape and torture are not just one-offs. It's not a matter of individual soldiers going rogue. In nearly every city and town they occupied, Russian forces stand accused of setting up designated torture chambers. 35 have been identified in the Kherson region alone. This abandoned facility is in the heart of the now largely deserted Kherson city center. From the outside, it appears to be a very average Soviet-style office building. But of course, it is not. Walking through the front door in place of a welcome mat is a rainbow flag. The LGBTQ symbol was used as a rag for Russian soldiers to wipe their feet. Down the stairs on the left, half a dozen rooms where prisoners were held. Prosecutor Andrei Kovalenko says bodies have turned up in the river nearby. People who, they believe, were dumped there after being tortured and killed in this type of facility. Those who were detained and tortured were mostly civilians, identified for their pro-Ukrainian position. For example, people spread Ukrainian posts and telegram channels or drew Ukrainian symbols around the city. For this, they could and did undergo torture. In the first six months after Kherson was liberated, 40 victims came forward to the prosecutor's office reporting instances of sexual violence used against them by their Russian occupiers. 20 of those people are women, two of whom were minors at the time. But the other half are men, most of whom were held here or in a similar such facility. And the most common method of sexual violence used here involved running electric current through the prisoners' bodies, specifically through their genitals. 
It is established, in fact, that the methods of violence against prisoners are the same. These captors even move the victims from one torture chamber to another. This suggests that crimes, torture, including sexual crimes against the population, were aimed at suppressing any intellectual resistance of the population to the occupational regime. And this was actually an organized activity. These tactics predate Russia's full-scale invasion in 2022. And the victims who suffered from those earliest crimes now offer a glimpse into what healing could look like for others. On the far side of the country, in western Ukraine, Oleksiy Holikov is doing the best he can to advocate for better awareness and acceptance of Ukrainians who have suffered through this kind of abuse. Oleksiy is 29 now, and he's settled in the relative safety of Lviv. He lives with his wife and works at an industrial plant. But when Russia first invaded eastern Ukraine in 2014, Oleksiy made his way to Donbass, to his eastern hometown of Horlivka a city that was and remains occupied by Russia. Oleksiy and some of his friends went back, determined to incite a resistance. We were fighting for Ukraine in Ukraine. Once we were there, we started taking some covert orders from the security service of Ukraine, gathering information, setting off small explosions, directing fire at the troops. We did all this guerrilla activity. For a long time, they managed to fly under the radar. But in the summer of 2016, their luck ran out. Oleksiy says he tried to target a Russian military commander with explosives. But then we are stopped at the checkpoint. It's just supposed to be a document check, but bugs were checked completely. When they searched me, they found the active remote for the explosives. They asked what this was. I told them the first thing that came to my mind. It's for a bike alarm. They asked if they'd see an explosion if they pushed the button. I don't say anything. He presses the button and, of course, the explosion goes off and they immediately tied us up and threw us on the ground. When he was first detained, he was tortured for information. After his initial interrogation, he was taken to one of the original and now most infamous Russian torture facilities in Ukraine, a place known as Izolatsia. And there the fun began. A warning, the details of his treatment are graphic and might not be suitable for all listeners. All our things were taken away, our belts removed, our shoelaces even. We were transported to our cells, which were small. Then at night, people in masks came. They tied my hands with tape, put a bag over my head, and they brought me to another room in the basement. They put me on a table. My legs were taped to the table, and my mouth was taped shut. But when they put me on the table, they took out what they called tapik. The soldier's polygraph. 
Each unit in the Russian military has access to an old Soviet-era military telephone, which, when pulled apart, has two wires that can administer high-powered electric shocks. And they attach these wires to different parts of Alexei's body. After that, they removed the tape from my mouth and started asking questions. At the beginning, I didn't tell them anything. When this wasn't enough to yield information, they increased the intensity of their methods. It just broke me. My hands were taped behind my back, but I ripped through the tape. But still, I did not say anything. Then they took off my pants. My ears started bleeding. I passed out. In late 2017, in a prisoner exchange, Oleksii was released. I went through that torture because I was an ideological patriot. And now? Now I'm still a patriot, but I am just a quiet patriot because my idealism was once leveled and punished, severely punished. It was on his release that Alexei realized his fight for survival was far from over. Now he needed to face the long and complicated journey of trying to heal and return to normal life. His physical injuries were the first things to be addressed. But that was almost the easy part, he says, because the sexual trauma cut far deeper. With the torture, when the pain stops, it's over. Sexual violence is not suffered only in the body, but in the mind. It um, suffocates the brain. This experience actually stopped me from being able to see myself as a man. I felt that way for a long time. This was an attack on the ego, the psyche. And the internal wounds were far more difficult to heal than the physical damage to my body. Oleksii is concerned that the wounds from these wrongs are now festering, and it is becoming a critical challenge Ukrainian society must face. The next war to fight, as it were. He feels sure that Ukraine is not ready to support the number of people who have experienced this kind of stigmatized pain and trauma. Not the women, and certainly not the men. Most men who have experienced this are afraid, and so they just keep quiet. They do not speak to anyone about it because they are afraid judgment will cause people to turn away from them. And they're right to be afraid, because that's what happens. It does not feel like Ukrainians are ready for this topic yet. You can expect that any soldier who has been captured will have had such an experience, he says. I have been trying to talk for a long time about this, trying to say something, and maybe someday, over time, 
Our society will be loyal to men who have experienced such sexual violence. Speaking publicly about what happened to him has helped him to move on. He's grateful to see the pursuit of justice through the courts in at least some of these cases, though not his. Alexei has spent time with psychologists as well. Each piece has helped him to heal. But the biggest piece of the puzzle, he says, was just the passing of time. Irina Tolstik is just one of the psychologists trying to tend now to the needs of survivors. I met her in a coffee shop in Kherson, where she works with the United Nations Population Fund. When asked if the fight against this kind of trauma is Ukrainian society's next war, she shudders. She's not ready to think about another war at all. But yes, of course, she says. This will be the long fight for survivors and for all Ukrainians as the ripple effects are felt throughout communities. But it's not a fight without hope. I've seen how people's values change because of this war. Because when everything is destroyed, it is only your core that remains. So priorities do shift in this time, I think, in the right direction. So I am sure that we will cope. To me, everyone here is a superhero. We are never without hope. The Russian Ministry of Defense was asked to comment on the specific claims in this story, but we have not heard back. Russia has always denied committing atrocities or targeting civilians in Ukraine. The Next War was produced by Sarah Larnyuk with assistance from Rita Berkovska in Ukraine, the current's Liz Hoth, and the CBC Audio Documentary Unit. And this reporting was supported by the International Women's Media Foundation's Howard G. Buffett Fund for Women Journalists. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.